Good morning. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of Gardanias, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away to the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The word of the Lord. Last week, we began a series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a short series over the next couple of weeks. We're in the season of Epiphany, and the season of Epiphany is a light and revelation of the Gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written as epiphanies, revelations of who this Jesus is. We're going to tell you who Jesus is, and each one of them takes time to tell us a little bit about him. In Matthew, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus, which was the inauguration of his administration and ministry on earth. It was in his 30s, and he's baptized, and the Lord God speaks, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and then Jesus begins his ministry. If you kept reading in Matthew, two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 5, we get Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and over the next couple of chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, it's the revelation of Jesus as the teacher, the teacher extraordinaire, the one who is redefining the law, what it means to know and follow God, to live into this kingdom. And then today, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, when the Sermon on the Mount ends, we get into two chapters in which there are 10 miracle mighty deeds of Jesus. Healing, calming storms, raising the dead, a paralytic, all these things happen. We're looking at three in particular. And the purpose that Matthew is laying these out before us in these two chapters is not just to, to kind of have all sorts of fun, crazy stories, although we get some of that. It's to, it's to look specifically at the response that people have to Jesus as he's walking around in, in Palestine, in Israel, in that first century, 
doing these things. And the question he keeps asking underlying all of these stories is, who is this? Who is this guy? Is he the Christ? So as we look at Matthew 8 and 9, these three episodes here, we're going to see three things, the authority of Jesus, the response to Jesus, and the underlying love of Jesus. The first thing we're going to look at is the authority of Jesus. And we talk about this a lot. So um, last week we talked about identity. This week we're going to talk a little bit more about authority. And I think these are the two big issues of the day. When I say of the day, I mean all of us will be dead before identity and authority are resolved. We are in a period in history, especially in the West, where we are not sure who we are, why we are here, what our lives are about. And so most of us in the West try to determine how to live on our own, right? It's what I feel, what I think, how I've observed or understood things. And a lot of that has to do with a lack of an authority. And when I say authority, I don't mean like a police officer or the principal at the school. Authority, another way of talking about it, is your basis or foundation for whatever you believe. Everybody has an authority. Most people don't realize it. They have a system with which they interpret the world. How they decide what life is about, what's good and bad, what matters. Matthew is trying to show Jesus as the authority over all things and the one who should be our ultimate, our authority. And so the first episode that we come to is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, and it's titled in my Bible, Jesus Calms a Storm. It's recorded in, in most of the other Gospels, and the episode goes like this. They're on the Sea of Galilee, which is not really a sea, but it's an incredibly large lake, the sort of lake that could have major storms. He gets into the boat, tells the disciples, we're going to go to the other side of the lake, which was the the pagan Gentile side of the lake. So they get in the boat, and they're going across to the other side of the, the lake. And it's nighttime. Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat. Because, look, of the 12 apostles, the closest, at least four of them were fishermen, which meant they had spent their entire lives on the ocean, on that lake. They knew how to work a boat. So Jesus is in the back asleep, and a storm comes, and it wasn't just a storm, it actually says it was a great storm, a mega seismos, a huge earthquake type thing. It was an apocalyptic-type storm. And we know from other readings about the Sea of Galilee that it was 600 to 700 feet below sea level, sitting on the edge of a bunch of ravines and just 30 miles from a mountain just to the north that was over 9,000 feet high, which meant strong winds often rushed down and sudden storms would come upon this lake that were stronger than any storms on most lakes that we've ever been on. So this was not an unusual thing. And there they are with this storm crashing down and the boat, not a gigantic boat, was being swamped. So they finally wake up Jesus, who happens to be able to sleep through this. I don't know how he does. It's, it's like being, some of you are heavy sleepers. I'm not. I wake up when somebody sneezes five miles away. But some of you sleep through like the storms at night. But I think this is actually, if you're in a boat that is about to be swamped and it's raining, and it's probably not a covered boat, this is like being in a car crash where the car flips over and you stay asleep. This should not happen. And they cry out, the disciples cry out, save us, we are perishing. Save us, we are perishing. 
Jesus wakes up and says, why are you afraid? Verse 26, why are you afraid? We're perishing, the storm. Jesus is indicating, look, I'm with you. If I'm with you, it's okay. Now, that doesn't mean if I'm with you, we will get through this. We're going to end up on dry land on the other side. But if I'm with you, do not be afraid. Oh, you of little faith. And then Jesus rebukes the storm, and it says in verse 20, there was a great calm. What's interesting is that this doesn't say that Jesus got up, rolled up his sleeves, pulled out his toolbox, started figuring out how to work the magic incantations. In fact, the other gospels, Mark and Luke, record that he just says, be still. Here it says he rebukes the storm. What we're getting here is, is like a, um, you know, some kids, when they are uh, rebuked, told to be still or quiet down, they get louder, crazier. But some kids are sensitive, and they will respond pretty quickly. Um, I remember one little toddler who, every time he was rebuked, in any way, like, hey, stop that, would freeze. So, you know, acting up, whatever, hey, stop. That's what the storm does. Jesus says, hey, you, stop. And it's still. It's quiet. It's kind of offended. And the disciples are scared. (laughs) They were scared of the storm, but now they're not sure of this, this guy. Jesus is saying, look, look, you know what Jesus doesn't do? Jesus doesn't pray to God the Father either, right? He doesn't say, Lord, save us, we're drowning. God, please, please get us through this and I'll be good. He doesn't appeal to the Father in this instant. It's interesting. Because Jesus is saying, I don't just have access to the Creator. I am He. I am the Lord of creation. I have authority over the wind and the waves. They make it to the other side of the sea, and when they get there, uh, two men, or as Mark and Luke report, one man comes out and there's filled with demons. A demon-possessed person comes out of the tombs. They, they, this person is, or people have been cast out of the city because they're insane, filled with demons. The other gospels record that they lived there naked, cutting themselves. Just a horrible human, subhuman existence. And as a Jewish person, you, went, you didn't go near tombs, you did not go near demon-possessed people, and you did not go near Gentiles. All of those things made you unclean, which meant you could no longer participate in the religious ceremonies of the day. You were sort of unclean for a period of time if you had contact with them. But Jesus intentionally has the boat land there, and he goes towards where this person filled with the demons is. And the demons cry out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
The disciples are not sure who this guy is. Somehow, the demon-possessed guy has an idea. He says, have you come here to torment us before the time? There was some version in in, in their understanding that Jesus had a way of bringing a final end to them. That he was their judge. He was the one that could undo and destroy them completely. Jesus, throughout this episode, is in total control. It's the demons who have been tormenting this guy who have to beg and cower pleading for Jesus to have mercy on them. And Jesus simply says, go. And as they request, they are driven into some nearby pigs. And then the man, or men, who've been in the tombs, naked, living a horrible subhuman existence, is clothed in his right mind, as Luke records. And the townspeople come out and see him there for the first time in years, decades. And they're very afraid of this Jesus. Get out of here. He has authority over the spiritual realm. They go back in their boat, back to the other side. It's like they just went over to this one side just to free this man. They go back to the other side, and when they're back in Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived during his adult ministry, some friends bring a paralyzed guy. Mark tells this story even more descriptively as the the friends tear open a roof to drop the paralyzed man in to Jesus. And Jesus, it says, saw their faith, not the man's faith, their faith, the friends who bring the paralyzed guy to him. And Jesus turns to the paralyzed guy and says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And of course, for those of you who have heard sermons on this or talks on this or have read this, you're like, well, that's not the issue, right? The guy's like, I can't get up. I didn't come here for confession. I came here for healing. Well, my friends brought me for healing, but I'm not sure you can do anything. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, They see what Jesus does, hear what he says. Your sins are forgiven. And they say, wait a minute, Jesus. Well, they think in their heads or they talk to one another. This guy doesn't have authority to forgive sins. Only God forgives sins. Or once a year, you go to the temple in Jerusalem, and we're up here in Capernaum, 50 miles away. You go to Jerusalem, and they sacrifice bulls and lambs, and that is atoning for your sin. Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, says, hey, you want proof? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, rise, get up, and walk? Well, it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can prove if they actually have been forgiven or not. So he says, in order to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins, and then he turns to the man, rise, get up, take your bed, go home. Jesus is overturning their entire understanding of how forgiveness comes. They had thought that it was about paying tribute to God through sacrifices at the temple. There was a religious system that had been in place 
for over a thousand years that involved going to Jerusalem to sacrifice bulls and goats and lambs. And it was the blood of those animals that, that took your place in their religious system. Jesus comes in and says, all of that is done away with. The temple is no longer where you find God. Blood of bulls and goats is no longer where you find forgiveness. I am the one that the temple pointed to. I am the one that all those lambs and goats pointed to, and I am the one who offers forgiveness. I am the very presence of God. Jesus, throughout these stories, is restoring, think about what he's doing. He's restoring creation, humanity, creation itself, the spiritual world, the physical world, to a new harmony. The new kind of harmony that is indicative of the time when God's kingdom is reigning. When God comes again and establishes his reign, there will be no longer storms that destroy sickness or tragedy or Satan, or evil, or brokenness, or sin. Jesus is ushering in a harmony so that the, the sea is as it should be. The, the man's body is as it should be. The demons are where they should be. And Jesus is seen, as Matthew lays him out, as the one who has authority over all things because he is the author of all things. And Matthew is asking, how will you, the reader, how will you respond to this Jesus? What will you do with him? That's actually the main point of each of these episodes besides the authority of Jesus is the response to Jesus. Our second thing, the response to Jesus that we get in each of these episodes. And the response is a whole series of very descriptive and evocative emotional responses. The disciples are at first afraid of the storm, we're going to die, and then by the end, they're afraid of Jesus. They marvel, they wonder, what sort of man is this? Not like any man we've ever seen. The Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles in the city where the demon-possessed guy was from, come out and see the man in his right mind and they are afraid. They beg Jesus to leave. Get out of here. Whoever you are, leave. They, they, he's just made this guy well again. But they want nothing to do with whatever this is. The religious leaders are angry. This man is blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. Who does he think he is? The crowds seeing the paralyzed man healed are in awe and fear at this man who has such authority. It's amazing and unsettling. Matthew is inviting the reader to respond to Jesus and asking the question underneath each of it, who is your authority? What is your authority? Is it Jesus or something else? It will be something. Now, there's an alternate response 
to Jesus in these sorts of stories, it's the modern skeptic response, right? And, and this is actually a very natural response that actually most of us, even if you claim to be a Christian or you've grown up in the church, you have that skeptical side. And the skeptical side says the church, Christians, hundreds of years later made these stories up. None of this actually happened. These are just fables and stories that were thrown in there so that people would believe in Jesus and it supported the people that had power several hundred years after Jesus. None of these things happened. Now, if you play the skeptic all the way out with earnestness and authenticity, the intellectual skeptic understands that underneath that skepticism is a view that all of us are here by accident. It's, there was no creator. There's no God. You can't prove that. That's, that's irrational. So we're here by accident, which means there's no purpose or meaning in life. You live 70 years, 40 years, 12 years, two years, 100 years, you die, the end. And a truly authentic atheist, if you wanna go all the way, will say something like this if pressed. In a million years, okay, a million years, it will not matter whether you are kind or a monster. It will not matter whether you're the kind of driver that stops every time a squirrel darts across the, the road, lets people in to cut you off, or you're the kind of driver that aims for the squirrel and cats and children. You can be the most generous person or the kind of person that has dead bodies in your freezer. It doesn't matter. In a million years, it actually doesn't matter how you live your life. So get what you can and hope for the best. Storms happen. Illness happens. Disability happens. Suffering and death happen, and there's nothing you can do about it, and there's no meaning. The only reasonable response to this fully skeptical view is despair. Honestly, you realize that you cannot control the hurricane or the cancer, and that things like joy and love and family, they're actually evolutionary illusions to make you think life is meaningful so that you try to live harder and survive. It's really just survival of the fittest. Despair, because life is hopeless and there's nothing you can do about it. Or you go the route of the, the stiff skeptic, which is stoicism that says to the despairing person, hey, quit your blubbering. Quit acting like everything matters. Quit being all touchy-feely about love and family and joy and beauty. If you die, you die, so what? And yes, there is no difference between a houseplant dying and your child dying. We all die, everything dies, get over it. As a few of my atheist friends have said, true atheism is actually very bleak. <laughs> Which is why most people can't go all the way. And most people who have a lot of skepticism live in, in the third method, which is actually pretend world. It's pretend that things matter, okay? Because we can't accept despair, we can't really be stoic about life and death in quite that same way. So many of us live life pretending that it does matter, even though underneath it we can't prove that it does. 
Even though we're not sure we want to buy into the creator thing, we certainly don't want the creator to have any impact on our lives. And so we just act like beauty, joy, happiness, career, kids, friends, like people and, and feelings matter. We, we act like it. But we try not to think about the implications of our skepticism and doubt. And basically we hope, we hope that our life is basically easy. That in the random chance of this entire universe that we get to be born in the US in the 21st century, hey, we won. And what else can you hope for? But of course, you guys know, I know, storms will come. Sickness and failure will come in your life. Suffering and tragedy and death will come in your life. Evil does exist. And we have to wonder, is our only hope the roll of the dice? Here's the thing, car accidents and hurricanes and cancer, do not care if you are good or bad, young or old. The storm at sea does not care about you. But Matthew is telling us, Jesus does. Matthew is underscoring the authority of Jesus, the response to Jesus, and the love of Jesus throughout these episodes. You know, what we see throughout these episodes is the compassion of Jesus. That possessed man on the far side, Jesus was a Jewish person in a world that was ethnically and religiously and socially very, very divided. And as a faithful Jewish person, you had nothing to do with the Gentiles, and let alone um, somebody who was demon-possessed, because not only were they unclean, but they they were evil, and they had evil residing in them. And probably they had evil residing in them, if you were a good Jewish thinker on this, because of their pagan worship of idols, which are really just idols in place of demons. And so they had invited the demonic into themselves. And so they get what they deserve. It's sort of a karmic view. But on top of that, it was a righteous view that said, I need to stay away from that. Jesus does not stay away from the possessed man. He goes right to him. That alone is an incredible amount of love and mercy. But not only that, he heals him, setting him free from this tyranny and this trap of horror that he had been in for years. And as Luke records so beautifully, when he's sitting there in his right mind, he says, Jesus, I want to come follow you. And Jesus says something that is so beautiful in in the Gospel of Luke, the, the account. He says, no, don't come follow me. Go back and be with your family. You've been living in a tomb for years. Just go be with your mom and dad. Go spend time with your brother. Go see your sister. That compassion to just say, go be with your family. I know that that you want to follow me. You can follow me. Just, he restores him socially, spiritually, physically, emotionally, because he loves him. A man that he should have no love for. And to the paralyzed man, to 
the paralyzed man, Jesus' opening words to the guy as he's brought in is, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart. He's saying, hey, I know you're worried about what's happening right now. Your friends have just brought you in because you can't really do anything because you're paralyzed. And you don't really believe this is going to happen. You've tried everything. You've gone to every encounter, every doctor, every anything. It's probably some injury, some tragedy that had happened in his life where he became paralyzed. And he had given up hope. Jesus is saying, hey, I know you don't have faith. That's okay. You're, you're welcome here. Come here, even if you doubt. Even if you're a skeptic. It's okay. Come near. Come near. My son, my daughter, you are my child. I care about you as if you were my own son or daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Even now, I am restoring you to God. There's a deeper spiritual need than your physical body being restored. If your physical body never gets restored, but you are restored to your creator, you have been restored. And I care about you. And he heals him and forgives him. Jesus loves the unclean and the outcast. Don't try to fix yourself first. Don't try to get rid of your guilt or shame. Don't try to overcome your doubts. Jesus says, just come. Or rather, I'm coming to you. (laughs) We get the picture of the love of Jesus in the parallel story in the Old Testament. You know, most of the commentators note that the story of the Jesus calming the storm in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a direct parallel to the story of Jonah. It's so close in, in storyline that, that some of the exact same words are used in the Greek translation of Jonah, the, gospel, the, uh, the prophet Jonah in that story of the guy and the whale, belly of a fish, that sort of thing. And the story goes like this. Jonah gets in a boat to go across the sea. A great storm, a mega seismos, comes and is swamping the boat. Jonah is asleep in the back of the boat. The men up top who were experienced sailors spent their whole life on the sea. Cry out, what's happening? Where is God? Let's all cry out to our God. They wake up Jonah and say, we are perishing. Exact same word that the the disciples say. And he says, Jonah calls out to God and he realizes, he says, the reason this is happening is because I'm here. I'm running away from God. So throw me overboard. That's what he says. Jonah says, throw me overboard. For if I perish, you will live. If I perish, you will live. Hurl me into the sea. All of these things happen exactly in the story of Jesus calming the storm. Except the last one. Jesus doesn't get awakened and say, okay, toss me into the ocean, and then you guys will live. And some of the commentators note that there's sort of an underlying missing part here. As if Matthew, Mark, Luke, are saying, no, he doesn't get thrown into the sea here. Because it's pointing to another time when he'll be thrown into the sea. Jesus calms the storm. And they're anticipating, the reader is anticipating him being thrown into the sea. On the cross, 
Jesus was plunged to the depths of sin and evil and death. He perished that we might be saved. He took the greater storm so that we could be calmed, restored, given life. Look, God may allow storms in your life, okay? In fact, he he probably will. Sickness, suffering, loss will come to your life. And you may not understand why it's coming. But it is not because he doesn't love you. Jesus suffered and died for you and for me. Which means you can seek him and turn to him and trust him. Elizabeth Elliot, the missionary and writer whose husband and friends died tragically in, in a, years ago in a missionary endeavor, wrote this, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. You may not understand what God is doing or allowing in your life, but you can know that he loves you. Look, it's not easy to believe in Jesus. I, I, I actually would say that. As somebody who believes in him, talks about him all the time, it's, it's rationally in the 21st century, it, it doesn't line up that you would give your whole life to this Jesus person who lived 2,000 years ago But I would invite you to at least take the time to look at who Jesus is and was. One of the things you'll find as you read, which we read this morning, is that in the Gospels, no one who ever met Jesus was indifferent to him. The response is fear, anger, wonder, or they fall down and worship. They want to drive him away, they want to kill him, or they want to give their entire lives to him. Nobody is indifferent. Most of the modern world, most of our Western world, has a meh response to Jesus. Like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? I don't know. You know, I mean, like, good religious teacher, I guess. Like, kind of a, a good guy, right? Like, right up there with the top guys. And that's largely because the church and Christians have domesticated him. We've taken the lion and made him a house cat. You could be indifferent to a house cat in your house, not to a lion. Is Jesus safe? (laughs) You can't control him. And he will challenge you. I would say this, and especially to those of us who are Christians, self-identifying and have been so for a long time, if Jesus fits nicely into your way of living, if he matches everything you believe politically and always has, if how you spend your money, what you do with your time is not challenged by Jesus, if you've got him figured out, you don't know him. And if you say Jesus is your Lord and Savior, but ignore the parts of what he talks about that you don't like, he's not your Lord. 
Jesus is dangerous. You cannot control him, but he is good, and he loves you. Let's pray. God, there is so much in this world that we don't understand. The course of our own lives, the news we read, there's so much to be fearful, skeptical, doubtful of. There's something in this Jesus that is intriguing that draws us in and we want to know more of him. So give us eyes to see, a willingness to come to him, and the ability to offer ourselves to him. And this morning, if there are any in here who are not certain, show yourself to us and lead us in a way that is everlasting. Amen.